Wash your hands, don't touch your face, sneeze into your elbow. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, you improvised Ivans. So, a couple of weeks ago, my mother rang me up on the phone and she sounded annoyed with me because she had just opened up the newspaper in Limerick, the Limerick Post, and in the Limerick Post, there were adverts for like like a night like a community college I suppose you'd call it night courses for adults in the paper and one of the classes that was being advertised was a podcasting course so there were there was a a course on how to start your own podcast was being run in Limerick in as a night course in one of the community colleges for adults and my ma was annoyed and angry with me saying why didn't you apply to teach this class why are you not teaching this class in podcasting I had to I had to step back from it and realise that you know my mother's she's elderly so she's very old school so she comes from a kind of an Irish culture whereby the job that you get must be the most secure. So getting a job, we'll say teaching in an institution is the best possible job because it can never be taken away. And that was probably the case maybe 30 years ago. But anyone who knows anybody who works in academics now knows that teachers jobs aren't safe. So I said to her, no ma, I'm I'm grand. I don't need to be teaching a, a night course in podcasts in Limerick because my own podcast is actually doing quite well and I have to go on tour to Australia with it next week. So I put the phone down and then I had to reflect on the conversation I'd just had. I had to check in with myself emotionally because as adults, when a parent gives you advice you have to be very mindful of the advice coming from the parent because you can give it a lot more credence than it deserves. Like emotionally, you're like, fuck, my ma wants me to become a podcasting teacher. I better do it. And then I had to say to myself, no, you're you're a grown adult man and you know what you're doing with your life. And you also have a quite a successful podcast and don't need to be teaching podcasts in a night college in Limerick. So I put that aside. And then I just couldn't get out of my head. Like how do you even fucking teach podcasting? Like how do you do it? How would you... If someone put a gun to the back of my head. And said go in there and teach a podcasting class. Like why do you even teach people? And it made me reflect more and more. How often. I get contacted to talk about what a podcast is like not by you the listener as such mostly what I get asked by you lads is is blind by what podcast do you listen to but I get contacted a lot by journalists mainly a journalist maybe once every two weeks would say we're doing a piece on podcasting in Ireland because podcasting has gone huge in Ireland you know we're doing a piece on podcasting mainly what they want to know about is it's advertisers the advertising industry in Ireland is trying to get its head out of its arse and figure out that podcasts are a thing 
whereas they're still stuck in fucking 2016 looking at influencers on Instagram. But anyway, I get asked it a lot. And it's like, I don't know how you would fucking teach podcasting. I mean, what is it? I can tell you what radio is. I can tell you what television is because I've worked in both of them, mainly TV. And I can only define podcasting by what it isn't really, to be honest. Um, so with, let's just take television. Television and radio are similar, but television is my, my area that I have a, a 10 years experience in. What you have mainly is you're, you're creating one piece of work, but there's multiple people involved. Producer, editor, cameraman, researchers at this massive team. With radio, which is audio, for a radio show you've got the presenter, then you've got a researcher, then you've got a producer, you've got an engineer, you might have an editor. Several people coming together to make this one audio piece. So if you were to teach podcasting, you're basically teaching all the skills of radio but for one person to do. That's what separates, that's the difference for me anyway, the main one structurally between what is a radio show and what is a podcast show. Radio show has got an entire team of people, huge set of resources, and a podcast is one person. For this podcast, I present it, I write it, I edit it, I engineer it, I produce it, I do everything in one. And there's pros and cons to it, Okay, what's the advantage of radio? Well, you can have something that's factually quite rigorous because you've got a researcher, you've got an editor, you have all these other resources to make sure that what you put out is rigorously correct. Because as you'll know with this podcast, I make a lot of factual errors week by week. Um, I might get dates wrong, I might get names wrong, things like that. But the advantage of the podcast, we'll say, over radio or over television is... So when I, when I if I was, to, if I'm, we'll say my BBC TV series that I just finished, which you can still see on the iPlayer, by the way, it's called Blind by Undestroys, that TV show or any other TV show, the main disadvantage that I see with it and what, makes me love this podcast is I could start off and me and my writing partner could have a creative vision of what the end result is going to look like this a creative vision that's based on ideas and feelings but then by the end of it after a year of making it because so many people have been consulted in the process and so many people have been involved with their own different opinions and skills that by the end of it, the end result often is hugely diluted. It's about 20% of the initial original feeling and idea is now in the end piece. With podcasting, because I have complete and utter control over everything, the final product that goes out is about 95% of the initial idea and vision that I had. And that's incredibly rewarding. That's why I love podcasting. It allows the person who's creating it to, if they have the right skill sets and tools, 
to truly deliver what is in their heart and soul and for that to go out to the listener. So that's why I like podcasting because it's fucking frustrating if you're an artist to start a project and then for the end result to be an approximation of what you initially wanted. And the other thing too is money. A radio show costs a hell of a lot more money to make than a podcast because you're employing so many people. And as soon as a lot of money gets stuck into something, then compromises have to happen. And when compromise happens with entertainment, it's usually risks aren't taken and instead uh, you're reaching for the lowest common denominator. You don't have to do that with podcasts. Podcasts, you can put them out and it's all risk-based. But the downside is you lose rigour and factual accuracy and podcasts are rough around the edges. Which I think it's fine once you're... Podcasts are honest. They're honest and they're authentic and they're congruent if done properly. And I think that's what people like to hear. Radio often isn't honest. You know, like listen to the radio and listen to how they speak on the radio like imagine if I was to do like when I do a podcast where I'm speaking about mental health and speaking about my experiences with it and trying to be as honest with ye as I would be with a therapist and imagine like I imagine a radio presenter doing that in this strange voice that radio presenters have like fucking They'd be... Okay, guys, uh, this week I'm going to speak about my experience with panic attacks. Now, I used to get panic attacks in public situations. My heart would be beating really fast. It's coming up to 9 o'clock now. We've got a lot of uh, big traffic there on the M50. But my heart would be racing. And it ultimately came from a kind of an existential dread and a feeling that I was inadequate. What the fuck is that? Like, what, what is that? How, how did that happen? that this was universally decided upon as an appropriate way to speak to people on an audio medium. I mean, they sound like a recently divorced Kermit the Frog on their fifth line of coke in the back of a fucking taxi. Immediately, a barrier is set up that suggests that this person is lying to me. Like, who the fuck talks like that in real life? And... They're roaring and shouting and there's an advert every two seconds. And radio is more like this aural invasive assault that's just designed to keep you awake. Whereas a podcast is a more relaxed and engaging listen. But they're also fucking hit and miss. There's millions of podcasts. And how often have you turned on a podcast and the idea for the podcast sounds unreal? You're looking at it going, wow, it's a podcast only about Blade Runner. And you fucking play it. And they're recording it into a lawnmower. And they don't know how to present. So that's the thing, it's hit and miss. At least with radio, you're, you're, you're guaranteed a level of quality. But it doesn't mean that the creative heart and soul is there to deliver something that's congruently authentic and that has that um that speaks to your heart whereas a podcast can but it's rare when it does so i don't know how the fuck you teach that you can't all you can do is teach people techniques with recording and editing but 
the magic of what makes a good podcast there's no teaching that there just isn't it's 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 art it's 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 artistry it's creativity it's the same as any other art you can teach people how to mix paints you can teach people how to see the world differently but you can't teach people how to make art you just can't it's 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 a spiritual and emotional thing now that's not me saying that to achieve this artistry I'm speaking about is something that's now off limits to certain people. No, it just means all you can do is you can improve people's uh, knowledge of what situations for themselves will get them into con- the condition of creative flow. But you can't teach someone creative flow. You can say, here are the conditions that might work for you, but beyond this point, you're on your own. And you have to find your voice. I can't fucking help you with that. And I can't tell you how long it's going to take. Or if you're ever going to find it. Radio and television also doesn't allow for this spiritual and emotional experience. To be present within their mediums. Because there's too many people involved. Podcasting does. Because it's an intimate space. So this week's podcast I think... What I want to do is, I want to look at that bit. I'm not going to do a fucking podcast on here's how you edit, here's how you record. Fuck that. What I want to look at is, I suppose the podcast hog as I describe it. The the bit of a podcast that makes you feel that fuzzy warm feeling of engagement an almost meditative calm, which is something that I strive for very much on this podcast. I want to look at that, and I want to look at my influences for this podcast, because it's not something I'd really thought about. I've been asked loads, especially at the start of this podcast, when I started making it two years ago, you know, blind by what podcast do you listen to? And a lot of people were really disappointed when I said I don't actually listen to that many podcasts because I don't really I mean I like this American Life Bill Burr um, Joe Rogan when he doesn't have a racist on but I'm not listening to podcasts loads once a week maybe and it's always been the pattern for me so loads of people were quite disappointed because they really liked my podcast and they were like That's a shame that you don't really listen to other podcasts. Other people then were flat out fucking, don't want to say bitter, but angry about it. Especially people in Ireland who were, they were, they'd been making their own podcasts for a while. There's been Irish podcasts for fucking years, but a lot of them, you know, they weren't really getting a lot of listeners. But I often find, and this is just an observation, and it's not just with podcasts, this can go for writing and it can go for music. Generally, the people who are very obsessive about about what they're consuming, like podcasters, people who make podcasts, who are also utter experts in other people's podcasts, their podcasts that they make tend not to be good. And it's it's a pattern I see with different mediums, whether it be literature or music or podcasts or whatever, right? 
the deal is if if you're obsessive about your creative medium and obsessive about other people's work and obsessing about what is the best podcast what podcasts are shit what's the best uh, books right now who's writing the best literature what's the best music obsessing about who's getting the best reviews like there's a defensiveness to that level of nerdiness a, a kind of a judgy defensiveness I tell you how you know how someone's headspace is like that if their knowledge of podcasts we'll say or their knowledge of literature if you're scared to speak about podcasts or literature around them or painting because you're afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing because you're going to get judged instead of them having a, a passionate knowledge about their medium which is welcoming and, and inviting and not gatekept and I find that creators who have this attitude they tend not to create work which is engaging because they're not behaving like artists they're behaving like critics and criticality doesn't have any place in the creative process the creative process the act of creating is about freedom fun non-judgment and an utter embracing of failure okay and if you bring criticality in the part of you that's a critic into your creative process you're creating nothing you're creating nothing because you're in a state of fear you're afraid of failing you're afraid of getting it wrong you're afraid of what if it's shit like that or what if it won't be that good you can't create that way you're you're now stifled as an artist you're stifled and you're creating with the critical part of your brain and not your fucking heart and soul and I'm not saying that there isn't a place for having knowledge of your of your medium. Sure, I do fucking podcasts that are obsessive about music. And you know I love music. But I keep a boundary between the part of me that's... Like no amount of encyclopedic knowledge about disco or synthesizers is going to make me better as an artist if I'm writing a song it has to come from my heart there's a place for criticality the part of you that's a critic and that you know appreciates the work that's within the medium that, that that you're working in there's a place for that but it's not in the creative process it's not in the creative moment it's in the editing process when the work has been done and it comes from your heart and it comes from a place of feeling and you're dealing with this piece of work that was made fearlessly with tons of risk the next day that's when you bring the, your inner critic in that's when you have to hold the work up and go right how can this be improved and all an encyclopedic knowledge of your medium does does make you a better, a better artist what it does is that in the editing stage of your art whatever that is in the editing stage it gives you uh, a much greater vocabulary and language to understand what's wrong, why it's wrong, or where it can be improved. But you start bringing that shit into the creative process, forget about it. You're not making fucking a podcast that's authentic. You're not writing a 
story or a book that's authentic. You're not making music that's authentic. And it's... How do you get over it? I don't... I, I, truly conquer your fear of failure. Truly conquer the fear of failure and conquer the part of yourself that worships the artists in your fucking medium. Conquer that part and the part of yourself that, that wants to be seen as a great artist. Everyone who makes art wants to be seen as a good artist. You want the people whose opinions you care about to look at you and think they make good art. You have to... That's the more, one of the most destructive fucking things possible. If your self and identity is based upon being seen as a good artist, then that means to risk failure means not failing at art, but failing as a human being. So you have to confront that. And how do you do it? You embrace failure. You invite failure into your creative process so that it stops being scary. And instead of being scary, you understand that failure is essential. You have to fail if you're to create. What got me into this? Yeah, so I was saying that at the start of making this podcast, people would say, Blind by what's your favourite podcasts? And when I would respond with, I actually don't listen to podcasts that much, it it, it actually made some people quite angry. It, it made people who'd been making podcasts for a long time go, who the fuck is this blind boy prick? And where does he get the the neck to be making a podcast and for it to be doing well and he doesn't even listen to podcasts and I found that those were the people that were getting pissed off gatekeepers who were making podcasts themselves that the podcasts just weren't doing well and it's not because they can't make good podcasts it's that just at that time and place from what I can see um they were engaging too much with their inner critic rather than their inner artist and then you end up with this frustrated fucking art where it's like I know what I like why can't I make it thinking like a critic so this week's podcast is going to be about it's not about the podcasts that have influenced this podcast but rather like I didn't pull this podcast out of my arse okay I didn't just fucking decide to sit down and start talking into a microphone and it having no influences there's a lot of influences for this podcast and things that I pieces of art that I've consumed over the years that have informed what this podcast is because that's ultimately as well what creativity is When, when when you a piece of art I care about is something that makes me want to make a piece of art. And when a piece of art affects you deeply, it sticks into your kind of creative DNA and eventually forms part of your identity. As an artist, art is an ongoing conversation. Nothing is original. Nothing. You're going to take bits of the art that you enjoyed consuming the stuff that impacted and affected you 
if you go on to create your own art, the DNA of that is going to be present in it. And that's what I want to do this week's podcast about. So the first, I suppose, influence I want to mention, and not just influence to my own podcast, but I think something that was quite prophetic in predicting podcasts, I want to speak a little bit about Samuel Beckett first. Samuel Beckett was an Irish playwright and author whose work focused on absurdity. And when I say absurdity, absurdism is an interesting word. Absurdity, when we ref- when we use the word absurdity in referring to art, what we mean is absurdity as a, as a philosophical concept. And absurdity is an absurdism. It's the contradiction, right? Like, I speak about meaning a lot. I speak about the desire for finding meaning in life a lot on this podcast. Well, absurdity is the bit in the middle between trying to find meaning in your life but also being aware that the universe itself is utterly meaningless. Do you get me? It's like if you critically go at the world and the universe and you look at the size of it, you go, fuck, this is utterly meaningless. You're you're born and you die and so does every other living thing and what even is life, this is meaningless. If you remove God, we'll say, if you remove the concept of God or creation, you just go, wow, life is fucking meaningless. Yet within life, you have to try and find some type of meaning within it. So it's, absurdity is almost like a cognitive dissonance. The part of yourself that smokes cigarettes, even though you know that cigarettes will give you cancer. That's what absurdity is. It's almost the irrational manic madness of searching for meaning in life when ultimately you know that everything is meaningless and that's absurdism and for with Beckett and with his plays and his writing anxiety is a huge theme for him and he suffered from mad anxiety he suffered from panic attacks and he suffered from anxiety and a lot of his work I'm no fucking expert on Beckett but when I look at Beckett's work something like Endgame you're getting kind of a, a stream of consciousness it's 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 like the there's an anxiety from Beckett's work and the absurd anxiety of Beckett's work it's not comfortable it's not nice it's a little bit like the internal washing machine of your own head when you're experiencing a panic attack like if you don't come away from this podcast thinking oh I better go see some Samuel Beckett you probably won't enjoy it these are plays that are a meditation on meaninglessness and you'll sit there going what the fuck is this about like in Endgame there's two of the main characters are in a dustbin eating dog biscuits 
it's really manic and mad and dark and you're in the audience going what the fuck is this and that impact of being at a Beckett play and looking around at other, other people and kind of going why the fuck am I here is he for real these people are on stage eating dog biscuits and there's no coherent narrative and there doesn't appear to be a story same with wait, waiting for Godot it's just a play about two lads fucking waiting for a lad called Gatto and nothing happens. And imagine this now in the 50s and 60s when he was making them. Because since then, obviously, the absurdity of Beckett has gone on to influence um, David Lynch, I would say. You know, you look at fucking Twin Peaks, things like that. That's 100% Beckett. So we're a little bit more comfortable now with absurdity within our mediums. But when Beckett was doing it in the theatre... People would get uncomfortable and people would get angry and people would get frustrated and people would look around and go, why are we here? Is this good? How do I know it isn't good? And it's almost like Beckett's plays are confronting the audience with the meaninglessness of existence. Do you get me? If I said earlier that absurdity in an artistic sense is the little bit in between life having no meaning and then searching for life in it when you're at a Beckett play you're confronted with it the feelings of frustration that you have with the Beckett play are kind of what we should be feeling about life in general but we don't and you're left searching for meaning in a Beckett play and it isn't fucking there because it's absurd so it's like um It's like he's inviting everyone into this strange fucking group therapy where you're confronted with that which you don't want to think about. Because for a lot of people, when you if you spend too much time thinking about the meaninglessness of life, that can send people down a very dark path. Albert Camus, a philosopher who'd be associated with absurdity, He said that he had a bunch of choices that you could have when presented with the meaninglessness of existence. Can't remember them all, but one of them was commit suicide and the other one was find God, but that they're ultimately just distractions. So, I'm not... Like, Beckett's a huge influence on me in general because I'm fascinated by his work. I'm fascinated... I'm not saying I necessarily enjoy Beckett. What I'm saying is I'm fascinated with how he uses absurdity and surrealism to create some uncomfortable emotions in the audience. That's what I'm interested in. But what I'm really interested in with Beckett and podcasts, Beckett has a play, and this play is from 1958, and the play is called Crap's Last Tape. And what I find so interesting about Crap's Last Tape is that it's an example of Beckett's theatre of the absurd. Theatre of the absurd is a word that's used. It refers to artists of that time who were operating within absurdity as their artistic medium, right? So Beckett has this play called Crap's Last Tape, which is an example of utter absurdity. But what it is, is a man called Crap, right, for two fucking hours, sitting down in a dark room on his own, listening to recordings of his own voice. And... Basically, this crap character, we don't know much about him, but he is someone 
it's his, it, it, when the play occurs, it's his 69th birthday. And Crap has spent his entire life recording his thoughts and what's going on from him inside every single day. This personal diary of his ailments and his feelings, he decided to record every single day and store it on a, on a tape. And Crap's last tape is him on his 69th birthday listening back to the recordings he made in private of himself and reflecting on him. And what it is, it's him trying to find meaning in his life. Now, in 1958, this would have been utterly absurd. In 1958, you, you didn't record your fucking... Anyone who was recording their voice would have been working in a radio station. People didn't really have voice recorders at home. To record your voice, you know, to, to, to do an hour of talking every single day in 1958 would have been very expensive. You'd have had to have had a huge reel-to-reel tape. It was very expensive. It cost money. It was heavy. You'd have had to store it. To do it every single day of your life would, would have required a warehouse. So it would have been a massively impractical thing to record your thoughts into a microphone every single day in 1958. But in this play... This lad, Crap, who's 69, is sitting at a desk in a dark room with a single light coming down on him, listening back to his own personal recordings. And you look at it in 2020 and it's just, it's, it's a play about a man who has a podcast. That's all it is. It's a play about someone who has a fucking podcast and it's no longer absurd. You're listening to it now. Every week... For the past two fucking years, I've sat down in a dark room with a light over me and a plastic bag on my head and have recorded my thoughts. And within Crap's last tape, you find, like, it's, it's not just a prophecy of what podcasts are in general, but for me personally, when I look at Crap's last tape, this play that Beckett considered to be incredibly absurd and ridiculous I see in Crap's behaviour what I try to do with this podcast which is I record this podcast each week for you the listener but also there's an element of I do it for me too when I when I speak about we'll say my own mental health on this podcast or if I talk through elements of my life that things that have happened, that for me is actually a, a contemplative space where I get to enter a state of flow and it's a form of meditative therapy for me that I'm sharing with you to try and find a moment of authenticity where it just communicates as something that's listenable. And the thing with Crap in Crap's last tape, even though he's quite frustrated, you know, in in the, I'm going to say Bikishan, in because I've never heard anyone refer to anything re- referring to Beckett as Bikishan. So within the Bikishan universe and absurdity and, and meaning, why is Crap in Crap's last tape at 69 years of age listening back to all these recordings of himself when he was... 39 and what's the other age that's in it he listens to one when he's in his 50s I think he's trying to look back on his life and search for meaning 
he's trying to find meaning in existence through listening back through recordings. And I achieve a sense of meaning each week by recording this podcast. So I just think I think Crap's last tape and the work of Beckett it's important for me, but I think it's a nice comment on podcasts in general. How what was once absurd is now not absurd at all and is completely normal. And the real absurdity, to be honest, is radio, which has become hyper-capitalist and attention-seeking and lacking in any type of authenticity. Um, another definite when, when I try and when, when I this isn't a deliberate thing on my part I, I don't think oh I better bring a bit of Beckett into the podcast it's just when you enjoy something and it, and it affects you even if it, even if it affects you in a way that bothers you because a lot of Beckett's work bothers me I don't like it it makes me upset it still creeps in as an influence and when I do a live podcast like I'm very much thinking of Beckett like when I do a live podcast I'm not I'm not trying to have it as just an interview with someone or I'm not trying to have it as come along and see two people talking that's not what I try and do with my live podcasts I I have my live podcasts in where possible theatre settings and I deliberately light the live podcast the way that that Beckett would light the stage. And Beckett's lighting in his uh, theatre works, it's always very dark. Uh, A single light, a lot of the stage in darkness, or maybe a wash of colour, and then the audience in complete darkness. I think with Beckett, a a lot of what he was doing with his plays is he was trying to create sensory deprivation. He wants the people in the audience to forget that they're in an audience. And that's what you feel. If you ever go and see a Beckett play in the Abbey or anything, that's what you feel. You forget that you're in the audience. And when I do a live podcast, I want that. I want the audience to be in complete darkness and to forget that they are in an audience. And then when I bring my guest out on stage, I have it lit like a play. And it's me and my guest, two stools and a table. And I'm not looking for an interview. What I'm searching for is a conversation that has the intimacy of a conversation you'd have in a kitchen that's allowed to evolve and change and go wherever it needs to go. And occasionally I'll bring it back to stuff that's relevant, but if a chat with someone on a live podcast for me, if it goes into an interesting direction, then what's happening there is that theatre is being created in the moment. And... I know it sounds pretentious as fuck, but I'm a professional artist. This is the type of stuff I think about. This is the stuff that I spend my day meditating on, really. Is, you know, if, if I'm in a theatre, how can I bring theatrics to what is essentially two people talking? And I think of Beckett. I think of fucking Samuel Beckett's work. And I do see it as creating live improvised theatre in the moment around human stories and words and conversations that's what I see it as I know you can go chill out blind by it's just two people talking on stage maybe it is but my intentions and my goal is for it 
to have moments whereby it's it's theatre. It's it is theatre happening in the moment. Same with when I do outdoor podcasts. Part of the reason I fucking love doing outdoor podcasts so much. Like I did one two weeks ago. I can't remember what I fucking called it. But it was I did a, a podcast two weeks ago in Sydney, lads. Alright, if you heard it, go back two, three podcasts. Hold on, I'll just find out what the fucking name of it is. I'll get up Spotify here. I see I can't know the name of my own podcasts. Blind by podcast. Ode to a princely bin chicken. So the last three podcasts I recorded this in the botanical gardens in Sydney, right? And as you know, I refer to them as my ASMR podcast. It's about I use a stereo mic to capture the entire sound of where I am. And I want it to be an immersive experience whereby you're you forget where you are and you're involved in, in the world of where I am at that time. And the reason <clears throat> I don't do them every week because they can be hit and miss. It's hard to nail it. But when I do an outdoor podcast, like that one that was in the Botanical Gardens in Sydney, ultimately what I'm looking for is I'm actually I'm trying to create like a radio play in the moment that is fact and fiction at the same time. And by which I mean, and now this this might sound ridiculous, but it, it's it's what I actively use as part of my process. So, if you want to speak for a fucking hour into a microphone, and you want people to be able to listen to that, what's key is storytelling. You have to have the structure of story. And what is a story? Very basic, a story is set up, conflict, resolution. So when I would record a podcast like that one I did in Sydney Botanical Gardens, and I kind of have a rough idea of what I'm going to talk about, have a bare idea, but also what I want is I want my environment, physical environment, to confront me with things whereby I react in the moment to create new things to talk about. So for that it was when I was walking around with the ferns and the lizards, but also what I'm looking for is conflict. And a beautiful moment of synchronicity happened on that podcast three weeks ago when I was in the Sydney Botanical Gardens. When I started the podcast, I gave you the setup and I said, right, here I am in the Sydney Botanical Gardens. And within five minutes, it started to rain. Now, I hadn't planned it. I hadn't planned that. But it was so fucking perfect that that happened at that time. Because all of a sudden now, conflict occurs. Here we are, we're in the Sydney Botanical Gardens and then the fucking rain happens and now we've got conflict and because we have conflict, I now have a journey and that journey became, how do I find shelter? So when I do that, as again, as fucking pretentious as it sounds, I'm looking for a type of improvisational theatre where I'm searching for a story in the moment by putting myself into situations where conflict occurs same with uh, I recorded one in Spain where I was in a park 
And some people were saying, why, why the fuck go to a park if you're continually disturbed by noises? And it's like, that's the point. I want to be disturbed by noises. I, I want to record an outdoor podcast and I want conflict. I want my job is to speak to you and be heard. And I want other things to come in and interrupt us. Because that interruption creates conflict and conflict drives narrative and drives story. The sound of a leaf blower that's getting in the way of our podcast. That's now a monster that has to be defeated and slain. And you do it by walking away or navigating it. You're introducing conflict which drives narrative. And now all of a sudden you're telling a story. And once you're telling a fucking story... You have meaning. And once you have meaning, you've got people listening and engaged. Record the same shit in a fucking hotel room. And then, different story. Stuff might not happen. You might remember a podcast I did called Poltergeist of a Builder. Where during the middle of this podcast, my fire alarm wouldn't stop going off. Then I went down and I went outside and I hit the fire alarm with a Harley and the battery exploded. Like that wasn't planned. What I did as part of my creative process in recording the podcast was I want to actively allow things to go wrong when I record this podcast. Something that would be considered on radio wholly inappropriate. It could be me getting a text message. It could be that fucking fire alarm outside. The fire alarm exploding and then me making a song out of the sound of the battery that I recorded. That is experimental creativity in the moment. And understanding in a creative setting that conflict and allowing things to go wrong in the creative process. If you respond to them flexibly with creativity, they don't have to fuck things up. What happens is things going wrong can be worked with in a, a like judo and all of a sudden now they're driving the narrative and that right there is embracing failure do you know what I'm saying when I was saying earlier when you're creating and you embrace failure that's what I fucking mean I'm recording a podcast outdoors it starts to rain normally you'd say fuck this it's raining I better go for coffee for a half an hour no embrace the failure of rain fire alarm explodes embrace the failure of the fucking fire alarm exploding do you know what I mean that's how you embrace failure and bring it into your creative process by reacting to it flexibly and you end up with all these happy accidents that you would have never found in real life and the key to it is playfulness be playful with them don't get angry with the rain don't get angry with the fire alarm exploding or whatever in your creative process is going wrong don't get angry with it don't get frustrated with it notice and accept that it's there and playfully see what you can do with it in the the moment and it harks back to Beckett because Beckett was a huge fan of failure in his work as well Beckett has a quote it's probably it's probably the most famous Samuel Beckett quote He said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And that right there is, that's Beckett letting you into his process. Failure was a huge part of his process. Because with Beckett's work, which was so utterly mad and not aesthetic, how do you even know what a fucking success is? 
what's your new play, Samuel? It's two hours of two people eating dog biscuits in a bin talking out of their fucking arse. Nothing happens. How do you decide whether that's a success or failure? Do you know what I mean? So before I continue on to some other stuff, let's get the ocarina pause out of the way, you greasy pricks. What'll we do? Ocarina pause, alright. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Still longing for that original ocarina with the high octaves. That one's just got a, it's got a large chest on it and it's too bassy. So you probably heard an advert for some bullshit there. Um, this podcast is supported by you via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it and you're listening to it each week, then please become a patron. This podcast is how I earn a living. I make the podcast for free. It's a huge amount of work. And you can pay me for listening to it by going to the to becoming a patron at the Patreon page. Some people listen for free. Other people, if you can afford it, please give me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee once a month. That's all I ask. Okay? And by doing that, it means that if the podcast stays free and people who can't afford that then can listen to it too, rather than me having to make it exclusive or charging for the whole thing, you know? So please become a patron and people come and go as patrons and that's why I always push it each week. Um, I really got to keep pushing it to know that this is what funds the fucking thing. Have any live gigs coming up? Yes, I do. Just off the top of my fucking head. Look, this week I'm going to... Glasgow is sold out. I'm talking to Limmy. Liverpool and Birmingham. That's this week, lads. 2020 March there are still a few tickets left Liverpool and Birmingham London sold out I'm going to be talking to Roisin Murphy the legend then on the 29th of March we've got Cork Opera House very few tickets left for that then Vicar Street Dublin 1st, 2nd, 3rd of April uh, what else have I got actually I have a few gigs in March um, Drada on Saturday the 21st of March we've got the TLT Concert Hall then Monaghan, we've got the Iontis Theatre on the 28th. Ulster Hall in Belfast in April. 
So come along to those lads. Alright. So another again it's not a podcast, but it's I suppose you'd call it it was a radio show. An incredibly surreal and absurd radio show that would follow in the Beckett tradition. That was a massive influence. That is a massive influence on not only this podcast, but anything I do, even even short story writing. It was a radio show called Blue Jam. And Blue Jam was created by legendary genius comedian Chris Morris, an English fella who'd be a huge influence on me growing up. Someone who really showed me that comedy can be deeply surreal that in order to be to be funny it doesn't mean that you have to be crude or you have to be slapstick but that you can introduce deep absurdity and surrealism in order to achieve comedy and and it's what would always turn me on creatively towards comedy would would be the work of Chris Morris and of course Flann O'Brien the Irish writer but Blue Jam Chris Morris made Brass Eye, by the way. If you've ever seen Brass Eye, it was a like a a parody of the news in the nineties. Fucking genius. Go and see Brass Eye if you haven't seen it. You'll get it on YouTube. Chris Morris made made Brass Eye. He wrote it. Huge attention to detail and how it was made. Brass Eye, in my opinion, is the, the last great piece of British comedy television in the golden age when there was a lot of money and there was enough money for something to be allowed to fail. Because Brass Eye spent more money than it made. And there was a huge amount of creative control. That kind of ended as soon as reality TV came in. Brass Eye was about 1996-97. And I remember it when I was a child. I used to fucking love it. But Blue Jam was Chris Morris's radio show. That I didn't hear at the time. I had to hear it years later on the internet. But when I did listen to it, it blew my fucking mind. And Blue Jam... Again, it was one of Chris Morris's projects that I, I really don't think he wanted it to succeed or cared whether it succeeded. He simply wanted to make something that he enjoyed and was given the resources to do it. And it went out... Jesus, I, it, used to go, it, it went out at three or four in the morning on BBC Radio. It was so disturbing and strange that the BBC wouldn't put it on in the daytime. So they used to put it out on the early hours of the morning, which made it even better because you're thinking who listens to the radio at three in the morning in the late 90s like taxi drivers people working the night shift there's a there's a real loneliness to late night radio that i find i've always found really endearing i've mentioned before like there's a an album by Donald Fagan from Steely Dan called The Night Flight which is a concept album about a a late night radio DJ who plays jazz and there's always been something about late night radio the loneliness of it that I found endearing it reminds me of uh, Film Noir where when when you're relegated to that slot at two in the morning and there's barely anyone listening that that's the only time that radio has space to breathe and to relax and to make mistakes and be contemplative and Blue Jam captured that energy perfectly but twisted it with this Beckett type of surrealism and what Blue Jam did for me is it 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 introduced me to the concept of the surrealism of Brass Eye 
but also showed me that humour can be delivered through ambience. That you can deliver surreal humour in a very trippy, slurred, laid back ambience. And a lot of that energy from that I find coming up in myself when I when I read my short stories. Any of the podcasts where I'm reading my short stories, my heart goes to Blue Jam. That's That's where my creative locus is. Like when you're in a state of flow, I always say you're emotionally returning to a point when you first heard or experienced someone else's piece of art that deeply affected you at a young age. So when I would have been listening to Blue Jam when I was maybe 19, 20, it would have deeply affected me as just going, wow, this is fucking incredible. This is amazing. I feel like I'm witnessing these jewels that only I can see and this is just tingling every part of my internal artist so when you then create art years later and you feel a sense of flow you're trying to search for that feeling you felt when you were first affected by someone else's art so when I'm if I'm reading a short story on this podcast and I feel that feeling of when I'm performing it I'm going back to that moment of first immersing myself in Blue Jam so I'm going to play a small little excerpt here of, of Blue Jam so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about and this is Chris Morris I had been in the pub three hours talking to a guy I used to work with called Ian before I realised he wasn't Ian at all and I was in the wrong pub By that stage, he was very cross. He poked me in the chest and asked me if I was some kind of puppy squeezer. I didn't know what he meant. He had me thrown out for it. I walked the street until I came to a doorway where I used to lean when I was married to a wife. I think I've forgotten her name now. No, I haven't. It was Rosalind. Yes, I have. I had intended to empty the pub out of my bladder here, but the doorway was lit up and surrounded by film cameras. Hydraulic pistons poked out of the side of the building. A beautiful girl sat where I used to lean, holding a bunch of leaves to her face and inhaling deeply while an assistant applied makeup to her nose and teeth. Next to her, an elephant was being made up too. It wore a special jacket with fireworks attached. Grey foundation was being applied to its trunk. The model was asking if the elephant had been given its breakfast. She said it shouldn't be expected to do this work without eating homeopathically fireproofing seeds. She'd insisted on it in her contract. So that was an excerpt excerpt there from, from Blue Gem. And... It's like sketches, but also like it was later turned into a TV series called Jam. And bizarrely, what they did to make it is they got the audio from Blue Jam, this thing that was made just for audio. And then they kept the audio and made actors voice like how do I explain it? They didn't 
They didn't record the actors. The actors had to mouth the words of the audio sketches that already existed. And as a result, they kind of slowed it down a little bit and made it a little bit more slurred. And Jam, the TV series, which is the TV sketch version of Blue Jam, it's one of the most surreal pieces of television comedy ever made. It's, it's, I love it. I fucking love it. Um, but what drew me towards Blue Jam, it was those monologues that Chris Morris was doing there. Just an incredibly surreal, ambient, short story about something utterly ridiculous, but delivered in such a way that it sounds more important than it is. And that's what always drew me to it. And it's my, it's what I try and recreate, I think, when I'm reading a short story. And when I began to research more into Jam years later, because, of course, there was only about there's only three seasons of it, so once you're finished listening to the five, six hours of Jam, of, of Blue Jam that exists, I was like, fuck it, that was amazing, and there's nothing else like it. What am I supposed to do? There's nothing else like Blue Jam. And then, through some amount of research that I did, I found out that the main influence for Blue Jam and... Something that nearly I don't that Chris Morris heavily borrowed from was the work of a fella called Joe Frank, and Joe Frank. He is like I I love Blue Jam, but when I discovered the work of Joe Frank, that's when I truly found my heart and soul when it came to what I would like to do. If ever I had an, a purely audio medium where it's just me talking. Joe Frank appears to be the one who invented surreal storytelling over a very ambient, calming background. Where you're essentially hypnotising the listener into a calmed state. Whereby you can deliver all level of madness at them in, in a in a form that sounds authoritative so Joe Frank he would have been operating in the late 1970s and early 80s for NPR who are I'll tell you about NPR in a bit and why I think Joe Frank is important to podcasts but there was a show called NPR Playhouse which would have I think it was only broadcast in fucking either New York or California and it was a one hour radio drama is what NPR Playhouse was. But Joe Frank would essentially deliver an hour-long short story as this incredibly surreal monologue that had an ambient background. And Joe Frank, his background, he was an English teacher and he also was a student of philosophy. And he was massively, massively influenced and interested in the work of Samuel Beckett. So Joe Frank was... He was trying to get... Remember I spoke earlier about... I said that when you attend a Samuel Beckett play, you're left with this... It, the play is so absurd that when you're in the audience, you're going, what does this mean? And you're struggling with the sense of meaning. And that process of trying to understand Beckett on stage means that you're now confronting the meaninglessness of existence. Well, Joe Frank did that, except he didn't do it in a way that was frustrating or anxiety-inducing. Joe Frank would confront you with the meaningless of existence except you'd accept it. His work was so calming and ambient and meditative 
that you begin to accept how utterly ridiculous and absurd his work is and you go along with it and it hypnotizes you and when i first heard joe frank i was like fuck this is it this is what i want and i prefer it to blue gem i do prefer it to blue gem because it's it's longer it's deeper it's more philosophical it's much wider um to interpret the humor in there is if the search for the humor it's not as as deliberately surreal as blue gem it's true art it's true and utter art and i think one of his pieces that he made in 1982 i think martin scorsese robbed it and made a film out of it and joe frank ended up successfully suing him but i'll play you a little also a huge important thing for me with joe frank is when i speak about the importance of recording my voice in a certain way to give the podcast hug to make sure that the audio fidelity of my voice can come across in a podcast I'm trying to copy what Joe Frank was doing. I still can't do it because he was using analogue equipment. But the way that he recorded his voice. You could just listen to it all day long. Uh, A couple with the fact that he just had a beautiful voice. And the recording I'm going to play for you. I don't think it does it full justice because. It's hard to get your hands on Joe Frank stuff. So I don't know how good the quality of the recording is compared to the original. But give this a little listen. It's an excerpt from a a one-hour Joe Frank monologue called Islands. It was twilight. Dusk. I was in a deserted part of the city with a six-year-old boy, presumably my son, though I sensed somehow that we just met, that I didn't really know him. We were in a residential district of low-rent, single-dwelling houses with beat-up wooden porches and small, untended backyards and sidewalks with grass growing up through the cracks. The sun was down. The sky was getting dark and it was almost time for the streetlights to come on. There were no people, no cars passing, and no light in any of the windows of the houses on the street. I had no idea what part of the city I was in. The neighborhood was completely unfamiliar to me. There were no street signs, and no evidence of public transportation, no bus stops, taxi stands, or subway entrances. It was fall and getting chilly. I walked along with my son, or whoever he was, trying to hide my fear. In spite of the fact that I had no idea where I was, there was a route I felt compelled to follow. I didn't know where it led or why I was following it, but we had to squeeze under fences climb through prickly hedges of thorns and go down back alleys we made our way through yards with wash hanging on lines so that there is joe frank right and that's just an excerpt that whole piece would be like an hour okay and just me giving you that 
20, 30 seconds doesn't really do it justice. But you can hear the tone of how he uses his voice, the way that it's calming, the way that there's an urgency to the calmness, the way he uses the background ambience of the synthesizer to make you feel unsettled, the way he uses certain words to introduce the concept of menace. You know, when he says, I was with a six-year-old boy, and you're wondering, what the fuck are you doing with a six-year-old boy? But then you don't know whether the six-year-old boy is real or not, or whether he's speaking about himself. You don't know whether the story is present in in now, or is it some ethereal thing that's happening outside of existence. And he manages to perfectly encapsulate, for me, Beckett-style absurdism, but in a way that's actually aesthetically pleasing. I don't return to Beckett's work. I'm not going to sit down in an evening and put a, a stage play version of Waiting for Godot or Crap's Last Tape on the television. It's it's confronting me too much. But with Joe Frank, he's lulling me away with his beautiful voice and his excellent storytelling to tell me something batshit crazy. And I don't give a fuck what it is. I'm just happy to listen. So, I, I I think Joe Frank, for me, is without doubt the biggest influence for me when I was trying to figure out what the podcast was going to be or what it was going to be about. That's where my heart is. You know, definitely Joe Frank is a, a huge, huge part of that. He died there two years ago. I mean, he died, he was about 80. He was sick for the past 10 years of his life. Finding his stuff online was difficult the best way to get it was through his own website and he wasn't doing Patreon but on his website you could do PayPal and pay to support him and pay to buy his uh, his stuff so that's what I was doing especially when he was sick when he was sick in, in the last 10 years of his life because he was living in America and their shit healthcare system he was selling his monologues that he'd done throughout his life to patrons who would pay for it and this would pay for his healthcare so I'm I was supporting Joe Frank all the way up into his death financially. He's someone who I would have absolutely fucking adored to get on the podcast to talk, but an incredibly elusive individual. And if you want to hear Joe Frank's stuff, you can still go to his website and buy it. I, I think the money goes to his wife. I do recommend you buy it. Um, Yeah, he's a huge one for me. Then another really, really interesting fact about Joe Frank and what ties him in to podcasts and also nicely kind of weirdly ties Samuel Beckett into podcasts like I said Joe Frank's hero was Samuel Beckett Chris Morris's hero was Joe Frank but when Joe Frank sat down to do audio he was going how do I do audio but make it like Samuel Beckett that's who he's looking towards as his artistic guide and I mentioned at the start of the podcast This American Life which is one of the biggest podcasts in the world. It's a radio show, technically, but it's a radio show that set a lot of, a lot of the templates for what podcasts are because This American Life's success, it's more successful as a podcast than a radio show. And I've been listening to it for years. And Ira Glass, who is the longtime presenter of This American Life since 1996, which is an NPR program, Ira Glass was trained in to radio by Joe Frank which I find fucking beautiful 
So when Ira Glass was a young fella learning about how do you make engaging content for radio? How do you make a story out of nothing? How do you speak and record your voice in such a way that it captures the listener in a way that radio doesn't? Joe Frank showed him how to do it. And I find that fascinating and nice. I find it charming that it means that Joe Frank does have a rightful place in the DNA of what a podcast is and then by that rationale Samuel Beckett has a place in the DNA of what a podcast is and that the fact that Beckett in 1958 created something like Crap's Last Tape a play about a man on his own trying to find meaning through the recording of his own voice in this dark room and then Joe Frank Essentially, Joe Frank becomes crap. If you're to look at what what is Joe Frank's career, he does all these surreal monologues. No one really knows what he is. There's a huge amount of autobiography in his monologues. But they're half fiction as well. He, He became crap in crap's last tape. That's what Joe Frank became. He became one of Samuel Beckett's characters. And had this career out of it. And then trained Ira Glass who made This American Life. So that's all I have to say. I mean it wasn't a podcast about how to make podcasts. I don't think you're going to come away from listening to this. Thinking wow Blind Boy did a podcast there on how to make podcasts. I did a podcast on the philosophy of in particular this podcast. But also the philosophy of podcasts in general. And I think if I had taken my mother's advice of going to Limerick Senior College and teach some fucking night classes in podcasting, I'd be out the door in five minutes if that's what I would have delivered them. All right, God bless Yart. I'll talk to you next week, you cunts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.